Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Recorded live. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another conversation with John McKnight and Peter Block. This is Maggie Rogers, and I'd like to thank you for joining us. John and Peter are the authors of Abundant Community. Their work joins the movement to support neighborhoods in discovering their capacity to create a strong local economy, raise their children, sustain their health, and care for each other. Each guest is a social pioneer who is inventing an alternative future based on the gifts and capacities of citizens. We're really happy today to be joined by Michelle Long. Michelle is a respected thought leader in the local economy movement who is dedicated to growing the number of businesses and and investors committed to maximizing well-being for all. Part of her work as Executive Director of Bali, the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, is to connect pioneering community leaders and attract investment toward local economies. And before we get the conversation started, I'd like to let you know how you can join us. We'd love to hear your thoughts and reflections. So if you dialed in, you can press star eight on your phone and you'll be put into a queue. And if you're following along on the web, simply post your comments uh, in the chat room. We have Leslie Steven, who is our site manager, uh, supporting us in the chat room today. So after they've talked for a while, we'll open up the call. So I'll turn things now over to Peter to begin the conversation today. Thank you, Maggie, and uh, thank you, Michelle, for joining us and all of you uh, joining in the conversation. Uh, Michelle, I heard you give a talk about a little over a year ago in Louisville, and it kind of opened up the world for me. And uh, (laughs) so I wanted to thank you for that. And you know, there's a there's all kinds of conversations now, the dominant conversation about what's wrong with this economy. Mm-hmm. And income gap, student debt, all that. And I, you're creating an alternative economy. Could you talk about that a little bit and how you think about uh, why, which, what kind of a summary of what you're doing and why now, why does it seem so important now? I loved that. First of all, thank you. Thanks for saying that. Um, I, and I love the mission that Maggie just read uh, for your work. I think we have basically the same kind of vision for the world. Um, you have some strong local economies and people caring for each other and all kids safe. I mean, that's basically the same vision we've had. But we've been working with uh, local businesses who uh, want to work together and want to collaborate for the, good, for the good of their own communities. And then we help those communities to share ideas across places all around North America. And we started 14 years ago. Uh, by uh, our founder was a woman named Judy Wicks of the White Dog Cafe in Philadelphia. And the sort of founding story was that she built this incredibly socially responsible business some 25, 30 years ago where all of her sourcing was done based on relationships uh, with the land, with people in her community, where she, she brought her customers on reality tours to see parts of the city that they may not know and to build relationships and friendships. She, she aimed to optimize for connection rather than profit. 
And uh, uh, but it really, the the thing that we most are, uh, talk about is when she had made this business into a kind of um, exemplar. Uh, she said that she had a flash of a moment of, ooh, I could be on the cover of magazines and uh, everyone will know that I'm the most sustainable of the planet. And then she immediately, um, her next thought was, what am I even talking about? Uh, if I really love the land, if I really love the farmers, if I really love the people of this place, then I need to teach my competitors how to do what I do. And she hired people to go knock on the doors of other restaurants to uh, take on the things she had. She went to a the local credit union and set up a fund for sustainable uh, farm enterprises. She um, uh, started to talk to the building industry and said, what is this emerging green building? Uh, how can you work with restaurants? What about energy? How do we have renewable energy? Uh, and and uh, sector by sector she went. And uh, Bali was formed from that original vision of hers uh, 14 years ago at this point. That's That one sentence is uh, amazing that she decided to build and strengthen her competitors. Exactly. Exactly. She was able to say that what matters more than my fear of the competitor doing better than me if I tell him my sort of trade secrets, even if they're secrets about doing what's right for the planet, what overcame that was her love. Her love for uh, for her originally it was pigs. She loves animals. So she, she was so horrified when she learned about <laughs> industrial hog farming. I really, everybody has their gateway, right? So um, she, when she learned about that, she was so upset by how these animals are treated, other sentient beings, that she, that she committed. She, in fact, flew downstairs and made everyone, uh, the chefs, take pork off the menu that night as soon as she learned about this, and she lived upstairs, so it was easy for her. And, of course, people were frustrated because they'd already ordered pork, but she said, it won't be served, not till I can feel good about the source that it comes from. And um, so that, it was that original love, and then that extended of course, to the land and to the people and to all people, and, and on and on it went. And wow. that love for those animals it was more than fear of her competitors. And it was a, kind of a secular love, almost. Right? A secular love. What, what do you mean by that? I mean, was it based on her religion, her, her churchness, or was it just who she was? Ah, uh-huh, right. No, I guess it was a secular love. It, it was yeah. the love in her, um, uh, really her churchness, but her love for, uh, which I, I guess I sort of see as the same, but, um, yeah. That's amazing. I, I love the, the relationship to the competitors, <clears throat> you know, I, uh, and also to producers it started with, which was the pig farmers and the pigs and the way they were raised. Uh, now, what are you bringing to it, Michelle? What, what, how has this changed? I mean, that was the launching vision. What form is it taking now? What is, what's most exciting to you about the new things that you see happening or that you're helping create? So that was 14 years ago, and I was the founding executive director back then. Um, and things have changed so much culturally. Um, I don't know if you remember, but 14 years ago, people didn't really talk about climate change. They just didn't really talk about it. It, I was, it was considered to be kind of out there, far out there. And... Uh, inequity was certainly not on the table like it is today, and local right. was considered to be quite parochial. And um, and <laughs> things have changed. Well, it was, you know, and things have have changed significantly. I, I remember back then, for instance, green building was kind of like a, a yurt or a mud hut out in the field or something. And now <laughs> there's not really a major metropolitan area that doesn't have high performance standards for office buildings related to energy. And so there's been significant shifts in our culture, uh, not where we need to get to it in any degree, but, but significant sh- openness. 
And so about five years ago, Bali's um, efforts shifted from sort of um, what we did at the beginning, which was more awareness building and um, traveling community to community and helping to organize groups of businesses to come together and do networks for change. About five years ago, we looked at how we could uh, accelerate this kind of um, uh, movement that was already had already emerged. And uh, so we, we began to start a, a series of communities of practice. We host various leadership circles. So we host one for uh, the local economy fellows, we call them, and these are all uh, hubs of a network of businesses. So maybe they coordinate hundreds or thousands of businesses in a place around a shared vision, or they run a, um, a food hub or a, um, a social enterprise accelerator. Uh, and we have found over and over that these people um, felt alone, like they were trying to um, fight against an old system while trying, trying to create what's next. And that maybe sometimes their governor would call and say, oh, what is this about this um, equitable, sustainable development? We'd like your advice. And they'd say, oh, I, I can't do that alone. I, I need help. I don't have any peers. And so over and over they felt alone and very under-resourced. This is not who we are. This is not how we're spending either foundation dollars or economic development dollars. Is, uh, so, so we bring them together with the goal of um, helping them to help each other. It's true peer collaboration. Then we bring in outside um, consultants to help them strengthen their organization um, and connect them to um, uh, funders. And then together they're, they're uh, building a kind of shared messaging platform for coordinated action and change. And then we do the same for two other leadership circles that we saw as high, high leverage or very important for economic transition. One, one is a, um, a group of uh, community foundation CEOs. Um, and these leaders uh, of community foundations are all interested in um, how do we use not just the little bits of grant money that we have to make our com strengthen our communities, uh, but actually the 95% of our money that is sitting somewhere in an, inv in an investment area. Um, um, foundations, of course. What, what did you say? I said that's so true. Exactly. So 95% is in usually Wall Street. And uh, so what we find with these community foundations is they take the proceeds from how this is invested, just a little bit of money, and try to, um, try to do some cleanup to the harm that's been done through those investments, uh, honestly. For instance, one, one told me that as they looked for the first time at their, at their portfolio, uh, they realized that they're getting their biggest returns from predatory payday loan companies. And yet then they want to make tiny grants to those communities that are harmed by the, those uh, same companies. And over and over, whether it be fracking or whether it be um, uh, mountaintop coal removal, the, the things that they are invested in are exactly the, the opposite of what they're – and many started to say, well, maybe it would be better if we didn't exist given how much more money we are investing than we are giving. And so this group is about uh, making that shift so that all – integrating all of their capital for the good of their communities. And then the third circle we host are all um, – uh, investors, people who have both a, a foundation and an um, investment company of some sort, and they too are looking to integrate that capital in a way that, that builds health and equity in their own communities. And they bring all those groups together so they learn from each other, and we take the learnings from those communities, and we share them more widely with the world with anybody who wants to learn from them through things like uh, an annual conference and webinars, um, and more things that I'll tell you about soon. <laughs> Michelle, this is uh, John. Just wondering, uh, 
if you're trying to get the community foundations and individuals to be investors, how do you uh, approach them? Do you uh, and how do you deal with the perceptions of risk that they may have in terms of local economies and local investments? What, what's persuasive? Sure. So uh, there's all sorts of lower risk opportunities as far as um, you know. Um, uh, housing or um, basic bonds in their communities. It doesn't have to all be in a sort of early stage company, uh, but there's also just um, some some do, for instance, they take a, a percentage of their funds and they uh, make loans to schools in the barrio in Arizona um, and as opposed to just keeping it in the stock market. And in fact, I think and as many would say, it's a misnomer to assume that the stock market is unrisky. Um, and, and, right. So, so they would actually say that the resilience of your community may be the smartest move long-term of any, given uh, the uncertainty of the futures that we are um, experiencing. So people take some percentage um, and, and invest that over time, or they um, – but, but some of them do have to create new, new uh, cultures inside their organization. So often – uh, one organization I know just simply had to fire their finance committee, their their investment committee. Their investment committee were people who were wealth advisors, and um, uh, it was opposite of their kind of I, I don't know their their own career best interest and and what they've been taught. And they had to have new people who saw the benefit of investing in their own communities. And and then finally, what I found fascinating and what I learned uh, through the process is that there's. At community foundations, there's many people who are donor advisors, who they're wealthy people who bring their funds to the community foundation. They make a gift of those funds, and then they have their own, uh, you know, Peter Block uh, investment uh, fund there at the, at the community foundation, which they then, the proceeds of which, they give as grants in the community. But they can never get that money back. They can't, they've already made a gift. Uh, but their money is being invested somewhere. So I was shocked to see that, that, that community foundations sort of sell how much increase you're getting on that fund each year. Um, I would think that you'd want to, and I, think, and I think, in fact, people are waking up to this, realizing they should use all their money for good. It's a gift already. Let's, let's not try to uh, cause harm to grow that pile of money and then give little bits of it. Let's use it all for good. So how do I strengthen my community with the investments? and with the philanthropic dollars. And some foundations have even moved to, like the Heron Foundation uh, in New York, they've even moved to one committee that does both grant-making and investment, and all of it toward mission. They realize uh, all investing has some impact. Um, they, they don't like to say impact investing is good and then there's other investing. Um, all of it has impact, just depending on what kind of impact you're looking at. So they have one committee that um, makes sometimes loans, sometimes equity investments, and sometimes grants, all around their mission, which is strengthening quality jobs. I notice on your website that you have uh, listed the community foundations that uh, have become engaged in this kind of investing. So uh, if our listeners are interested in uh, following this kind of a path, uh, it might be useful to look at that list and see who's giving and maybe connect the community foundation where, uh, where you live with uh, any of these community foundations or with you, Michelle, but uh, you've, you've got good experience in pulling these people into a different kind of investment strategy, and uh, I think uh, we want to try to promote and spread that. 
That's wonderful. And we're actually recruiting for a second cohort of community foundations right now. So uh, now's a good time if somebody in there wants to recommend uh, their own community foundation. It's a, a tremendous uh, learning community with great faculty. Um, if this is their interest, um, they could sign up soon for the next cohort. Great. It's just a, it's a brilliant idea, Michelle, because wealthy people, when they give the money to the community foundation, they get the return on that money at the moment of the gift. That's what's so interesting with the tax deduction. So if they're in a high tax bracket and they give that money to the foundation and, and, and they can't touch it after that, well, there's a huge earnings there. So they've already got their return. Exactly. And so why why wouldn't and, and just the exactly. idea? That, <laughs> yeah. Why not why not run that endowment down? You know, what why what are we saving the money for? Is that is kind of the question that you're raising? Absolutely. And it's almost like a like Jefferson thought there should the idea of leaving your money to your children was a mistake. You should leave it to the community. And, and I think you're modernizing that thought by saying we have all this idle capital. That's and right. there are investment committees in every church that have an endowment. They're having the same old conversation. With, uh, and so I think it's politically powerful, this idea, that says uh -huh. this is a way to convert money into the well-being of community. And, and it's, Absolutely. Uh, and you don't use the word charity, which I like. You use the word investment. It's right. just such a powerful thought. Michelle, another question I had uh, was, let's imagine there is a neighborhood or, or a small area or a smaller town, and uh, you, uh, you provide a, a, a set of possibilities for them. How do you, how do, you do that? How do you uh, contact the local leaders that you're describing in the first place and persuade them to, get, to come together? How does that work? So, uh, do you mean how, what is, how does Bali do that, or how do people do that in their own communities? Well, starting at least with with you, and uh, okay. maybe you've learned from others how they do it. But uh, uh, I've had the idea that that you are yourself identifying leaders in local communities and bringing them together. Um, and I just wondered how you go about doing that. Sure. So we do uh, bring them from local communities to national gatherings. So through these various leadership circles, uh, we, 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 we find them based on uh, reputation, based on a big, big referral network, um, who, who is most effectively uh, have, the, have the, um, the will of their community or the trust of their community uh, toward um, an evolution of our economic system toward one that supports life. Who do you know? What, what is their work? What is the most innovative that we're seeing? And uh, we recruit for these different leadership circles every year or two, and that's how we find them, is really that word of mouth and referrals and interviews. Um, and then at the local level, um, people who want to bring together businesses in their own place, uh, it, is, it is really about um, identifying those who are uh, already, uh, you know, kind of sparked, Are we losing the sound? Can you hear me, John? Yeah, I just lost the sound. Maggie, come back, Michelle. I, I think we lost Michelle. 
Okay, she'll probably call back in. Right. If she once she realizes she's lost us. Uh-huh. You know, what she just said was interesting to me, John, while we're waiting for her. She uses conferences as a, as a connecting tool. You know, uh, we've always historically used them as for associations where professionals to get together to change me- exchange methodology. <clears throat> Looks like Michelle is back. But uh, she says she uses a national conference as a way of uh, screening, selecting, inviting people, and in the experience of being in the conference, that organizes a city. You know, I could imagine you sponsoring a Spring Green conference yes, local sure. living, mm-hmm. and just from the people who showed up, you would have launched some kind of cooperative movement. Michelle, are you back? I am. I don't know what happened there. Sorry, guys. I don't know. We, we missed you. <laughs> uh, well, we were talking some about organizing at the local level, and uh, how to identify those kinds of emerging sparks that exist now and bringing them together around a shared vision. Uh, we have on our website uh, a part, uh, at, at org. there's a part of the website called Spreading Solutions, and then under that, What Works. Uh, and, and we've really seen kind of eight strategies or pathways um, that, that need to happen in every place and that when they do, do help to build equitable, healthy local economies. And and uh, uh, my good friend Deborah Fries, who I know both of you know, and I was with her last night, says, uh, start anywhere and follow it everywhere. And and that's really what I believe is true of these eight, you know. So um, these are uh, think spoke, thinking local first. They are um, prioritizing investment in historically marginalized communities. They are um, working towards shared ownership. Their collaboration for good, and uh, you know, for all of these, um, there are just so many examples of, of things that you could start to do in your community, and then building on that momentum, start to do something else. You know, what, we have a question earlier, Michelle, about the restaurants collaborating to change the food distribution, and she says, "Is that system competitive? What what kind of earnings? What kind of margins? What's the economics of the?" small businesses that you're organizing and initiating, starting. Do you have any sense of that? Is it less, more profitable, equally profitable? Do you not ask that question? Well, there are businesses just like all businesses in the economy. There's, there's, there, there's every possible iteration, um, every sector, every size. Uh, they represent the ones that we work with are locally rooted, uh, but are, that is true of most all businesses in the United States. Um, and in fact, all uh, over the last uh, 30 years, all the new jobs in this country were created by uh, not the small businesses as in under 500 employees, but under 20 employees. All the new jobs in this country, um, net, have been created by small enterprises, by small businesses. And uh, as far as profitability, many of them are um, uh, in some of the most uh, emerging sectors that people are interested in. They're excited and interested in renewable um, energy and in uh, healthy local food systems, uh, in um, greener uh, buildings. So they're, they're, in a, they're in growing sectors often. That's, that's where the real growth is. Right. It also seems like, like the, the food production, food distribution seems to be at the center of a lot of this, these movements, almost essential. Do you have any sense of why that is or your observation about that? Well, it's, you know, I, I think it's about 
there's a lot of reasons. Um, but one is sort of, it, it is essential to, we have many meals per day, and it's, it's where we came from. From Most of us come from agricultural families very short generations ago, and uh, there's, it, we, we relate to it very much. Um, and, and it builds a kind of um, pride in community, what, what grows here, what, what are we known for. You know, the, um, in, in a group we work with in Hawaii, they've had a regeneration of the ulu, which is breadfruit. Uh, and they feel pride in uh, reintroducing this culturally appropriate food, which grows so well there, which is delicious, uh, and the stories of people making it over the years and all the unique recipes of that place. And um, similarly, you know, it, it may be uh, in Detroit, people we work with doing um, uh, downtown uh, gardening. You know, off the, in Detroit is such a city of... Um, uh, of, of change and uh, where so many people were left uh, when, when, when industry left there, when, you know, the big three auto left there um, and so many houses were foreclosed, so many houses were burnt down. If you visit Detroit, it's really amazing sort of a couple of houses in every block are burned. And, uh, but, but then people from that, what do you do next? Well, we, we need to eat and, um, we, we want to grow beauty and, and, and grow things from the land. And so corner gardens popped up everywhere, and the uh, uh, Black Food Security Network um, grew to say we can feed ourselves and uh, we'll be, have healthy bodies. And uh, then the, the food lab in Detroit, which we work with, um, uh, started to help small entrepreneurs create food businesses, get the uh, mentoring that they need, get the technical assistance or permitting that they need, get the peer-to-peer kind of uh, camaraderie, you know, courage. How did you do this? And how did you do that? And they even even have, uh, when you visit their gatherings, they're, they're, they're singing. They're singing about, um, uh, you know, uh, um, bread dough rising. And, you know, it's just like really invigorating and exciting. And then um, because there's been so much empty infrastructure um, sitting vacant uh, with so many people having left Detroit, there's, uh, they connected all these food enterprises to these beautiful commercial kitchens that were unused all over the city. And they're rebuilding from food and then extending out to other sectors. That's amazing. That's amazing. Michelle, uh, another thing that uh, – I've wondered about is uh, in the, our asset-based community development organizing, in local neighborhoods, you find a fair number of uh, people who are engaged in, in uh, business out of their home. They, they don't have anything on the street. And uh, generally speaking, if you talk with them about the kinds of things that would uh, help them along, it comes in two categories. Number one, they need to broaden their market. And number two, they need uh, uh, further capital. And uh, I'm wondering about the market end of things, uh, how, how you help people along there. What, what, what can we understand from your work seems to work in terms of getting and market for local uh, enterprises? That's a great question. So someone told me once uh, that, and I really like this description, you know, it's actually relatively simple. The economy is nothing more than how you produce, distribute, and consume goods, and in the process productively employ people so that they can 
purchase the goods and services that they need for their lives. And in that way, it is relatively simple. And, and it, if we think of um, our, our dollars as a form of energy toward, uh, or intention toward what we want, um, we can look to see where are our dollars being spent. Are they being spent in our city or in our community? Or are they being spent far away? Are they being invested here locally or are they being invested far away? Are they being invested or spent in, a, in, in a, a ways that support distributed ownership, lots and lots of owners who get to benefit from their work and their assets over time, or to concentrated ownership? Are they being spent with black-owned businesses or are they being spent with white-owned businesses? Um, so you can look and see what your intention is, and then that's very, very powerful. Um, how do we collaborate to promote um, those that are local? Uh, how do we promote black-owned businesses? How, does the, uh, anchor, how do the anchor institutions of significant purchasing in your city uh, decide to spend their money in the procurement dollars, uh, whether it be your uh, government or your uh, hospitals or any of the large businesses that are sort of anchors in your community? Um, and that's significant. That is, that is um, it, 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 it's not really a mystery. It, it, if you buy from the businesses in that place, they will make it, and if you don't, they won't. And then you won't have people who are employed, and you won't have, you won't have the benefits of... Um, uh, uh, that strong entrepreneurial um, uh, culture or, or just families that can make it in your own community. Uh, similarly, um, uh, it's about investment. So you just said they need um, capitalization or they need investment dollars. Um, it, particularly in uh, lower-income communities or uh, often communities of color, you know, whole portions of our population have not had the same opportunities to build wealth. So. Um, because of various isms and racism and uh, systemic oppression, we've, we have whole segments of our society who don't have friends and family uh, to borrow money from for that friends and family loan. Um, they don't have um, uncles and cousins and sisters who have um, a business who can mentor them and how they took the steps that they did. Uh, one one uh, project that now Judy actually is taking on, Judy who founded Bali, is she's created in Philadelphia something she's called an aunts and uncles club. And this is basically <laughs> middle-class white people who are saying to other communities, um, we'll be your aunts and uncles, we'll be your friends and family and give you patient money and, and share our business experience, what we've done as entrepreneurs, and, um, and, and they're starting to make loans to people in other communities nearby them. Um, in, in Detroit, again, I was giving some examples in Detroit, there's a, a new uh, initiative called Kiva Zip that is uh, providing uh, loans based on um, uh, reputation rather than um, assets. Um, there are, uh, uh, there's something called the Working World, uh, which is an investment group that is making loans to the workers of, for instance, if a, if a multinational company decides to just pull up and move overseas overnight and sort of leave hundreds of people without a job, um, providing loans to those workers to buy the factory themselves and to carry on. These guys know how to do that business and let them become the owners and let them um, uh, benefit from that asset. And your website has a lot of these stories uh, for people who are interested in going further, right? It does. And it does have lots and lots of those stories and all sorts of webinars and uh, we're actually starting something in the new year, too. So if um, uh, people wanted to email me, they could um, put it on the list. But we're starting something called uh, Wellbeing Wednesdays. Uh, over the years, we've come to see that change really needs to happen at three levels. So it needs to happen inside ourselves. We have to want to see something different. You know, we have to believe the world is loving and connected. 
rather than dangerous and divided because whatever we believe is what we tend to build. Uh, so how do we cultivate in ourselves the ability to um, um, uh, f- feel our interdependence, to feel our connection to others? Um, we, we work a lot with the Greater Good Science Center out of Berkeley, and they found that the things that make all people well are universal. Uh, all people, regardless of demographics, feel well when they feel deeply connected to their own, um, well, to their own voice, to their own, uh, what's trying to come through them, their own purpose or meaning. And they feel well when they feel connected um, to community, uh, and they feel well when they feel um, the, a sense of awe or reverence. Uh, for this larger natural world that is magic and I'm just a little part and how does it even work and I don't even understand it, but it's amazing. And they feel well when uh, they've acted compassionately. When they've seen suffering and they've met it with love and they've done something out of compassion, they feel well, those things. So basically interconnection, interdependence, connection to self, uh, the larger world. That's what makes us well. And so can we cultivate those capacities in ourselves so that we can innovate from that place so that like Judy, when her love overcame her fear of her competitor, can we cultivate that so that then we can act like that out of our business? Um, we're starting to something called Wellbeing Wednesdays, which basically are, um, you'll, you'll receive every Wednesday a, a kind of a practice um, related to one of those four threads each week, but then also a, a parable, a parable of a, of a business story, a business that is leading from that thread, whether it be compassion or awe, how does it show up in finance or in construction or in farming? And then, and then finally, um, there is no for the long-term um, kind of healthy, sustainable, equitable business outside of a sustainable, healthy, equitable system. Um, so how do we join together to change the systems in our community? And then we'll be sharing um, examples and case studies from other communities um, each week that relate to a, a systemic shift, one of those um, eight what's working pathways that I named that are on our website. So every Wednesday, you'll, you'll start, uh, people will be able to participate and get these and read them themselves just to be inspired or uh, host a gathering of entrepreneurs uh, so that people can feel into together. Uh, who are we and who do we want to be as a society, really? Uh, what could we be? Let's do this. Um, or they could, you know, read it with their colleagues in their office. Um, and then we're helping to organize some communities to host these Wellbeing Wednesday, um, uh, Wellbeing and Business uh, Labs. Uh, we, we did one in Oakland earlier this year, and and I'm actually uh, in Jersey right now um, uh, because they, they're starting one here. Why Wednesday? Is well, because mine? it sounds so good. Well, being Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> I w- wonder, w- uh, Maggie. Maggie, we should open up in case people would like to call in. You want to invite invite them? Sure. For sure. Um, if if you called in, if you've used your telephone to dial in, you can press star 8, and uh, that will notify us that you'd like to participate in the call. Or if uh, you're following along on the web, just type in your comment or question on the chat. Um, we, do, we do have one uh, question in the chat, and I just had a caller dial in. So I'll just read the question in the chat. Uh, can you recommend available co-op education for local engagement to build appreciation of co-principal local development. I didn't quite catch that. Would you mind repeating it? Sure. Uh, Can you recommend available co-op education for local engagement to build appreciation of co-principal local development? 
it's really about a cooperative form of, of enterprise, Michelle. Where, where do people study that? Uh, is that a fair amount of the, of the companies involved with you? Are they co-ops? Well, some percentage are. Um, it's, it is a growing business model. I think it wasn't last year. This year is the year of soil, right, at the UN. I think last year was the year of the cooperatives. It's supposed to be the fastest growing business model in the world by 2020. And um, so it is rapidly growing in this country, and certainly um, there are plenty of cooperatively owned um, companies in uh, our network. Um, and if, if, you, if you just there's the U.S. Federation for Cooperatives, I think, that has excellent education. Um, there's just so, so much on the web right now um, about, about cooperative development. And those are some of the stories that we share um, as well on our website and with these Wellbeing Wednesdays. Um, stories of uh, whether it be cities uh, like Madison, Wisconsin, or New York that are investing in uh, capacity building for worker cooperatives or providing uh, low interest loans and zero interest loans for worker cooperatives because it's really a matter of, of education. You know, how do you set it up? What's the structure? Some of the people that are in our investor network are looking at how do you make investments in cooperatively owned structures, you know? So it's a, definitely a growing field and, and really just a matter of education. So is there a call in, uh, Maggie? Yep, we, we have two, so I'll I'll take the first one now. How do you know? Hi, and Hi. welcome. Yeah. <laughs> okay, this is Nancy Berteau. Hi, everybody. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Nancy. Um, my question is for um, Michelle. Um, I have uh, two classes next semester of about a dozen each. And I'm interested in having a project where they would be able to really do some sort of uh, study or, or do some, some calculations or do something helpful around local, you know, building locally based economies. And wondered if um, Michelle would be interested in, um, you know, having a phone call from me sometime to just sort of think of, dream up what idea might be useful, and then, then I would partner with somebody here in Cincinnati, and maybe it could get publicized on the website. We got some results of interest. Well, sure. I appreciate that. We could absolutely have a call later, and also the um, Institute for Local Self-Reliance is a good place to go to just to um, be thinking about the kinds of studies that have been done uh, and uh, maybe you know what's still missing. They, they keep a really good uh, compendium of studies and research. We, I'm, I'm a, a college professor. I should have told you what level that is. I think we'd be undergraduate seniors, basically. And I, we've done a lot of, I'm involved in a project on doing research on co-op. You know, we were just talking about co-op. Um, but I'm also interested in just this idea of, I mean, does just does small business just always translate into economic and environmental sustainability in a good way? Or does, does other, do other uh, and I'll leave this, my, my belief is that other really important ingredients need to be present. It's not just developing local business. It has to have other uh, community metrics in it to make sure that we, we are doing something positive. Does that make sense? To, to say? Do you mean that you need to, uh, that the businesses need to do different things uh, besides just exist in order for it to be positive? Or are you saying that the whole community, there needs to be other assets and activities present than just smaller local business? Well, yeah, what I'm saying is that there is such enthusiasm now for micro enterprise that everybody is just so enamored with this. Oh yes, we're going to have you know these you know 
inner city areas that have no jobs, we're going to have microenterprise, and that's going to fix everything. And I just don't, I'm not seeing it. I think it has to be, we have to have a much more thought out network where things fit together, where people are empowered, where the, you know, the, the capital stays with people lower down as opposed to being extracted out of the organization, wages are high enough, all that kind of thing. Thank you. Yes, it, 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 while, while it is true, apparently if, if one in three microenterprises in the United States hired just one person, we'd be at full employment. And in fact, um, microenterprises are the only ones creating net new jobs in our country. And in fact, there's been so many studies now that show that um, it, it, that 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 um, we lost her again. Uh, I'm here. Hello. Okay. Michelle. Yes, I'm here. Go ahead. Give us that last thought again. So you, 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 we yes. lost you just for a second. Sure. There's so many studies now that show that jobs and wealth per capita are directly correlated to density and diversity of local ownership per place. So it is an absolute, uh, well-documented point at, at this at this time that we, that that is the best strategy for most jobs, most wealth per capita. But what is um, but that doesn't just happen by magic. To your point, uh, what what allows for a, a great small business climate in a community? Uh, sometimes that means uh, pre-entrepreneurship support. If you have, like I was naming before, whole sectors of our population that haven't had the same opportunities to build assets and wealth, how are you? In, how are you supporting those uh, young people to graduate high school, uh, to uh, have uh, support around them in a way that enables them to, um, you know, to level the playing field? Uh, what is the capital that's available um, uh, in that place? And what, is, what kind of capital is it? Um, that's very, very important. Is it patient capital? Is it values-aligned capital? What kinds right. of capacity building and technical assistance is available in that community? Does it help you to do things like build cooperatives? Or is the only kind of um, business imagination about um, growing to, to scale, you know, and to outsourcing uh, eventually your production overseas and away from local jobs, et cetera? So absolutely, I would agree with you. You need much more um, support uh, to ensure uh, local ownership per capita. And then if you have it, um, you will have more jobs and more wealth uh, in your place. Great. Now, is there another caller for Maggie? Yes, there is. Thanks, Nancy. Let them in. Thanks, Nancy. Hi, and welcome. Hi, uh, this is David Rosenberg calling from Woodenshoe Gardens. Um, I'm a vegetable farmer, and um, been in the local food movement for about 40 years, actually, and I'm just thrilled at all the excitement and attention that local food has gotten in recent years. Um, I wanted to bring up an observation that I've seen and wondered if if any of this resonated with your work. Um, we have a plethora, a plethora of farmers markets in, in the Cincinnati area, and they seem to be in, an, in, in, in a period of, of stagnation. Um, what I'm noticing is um, we have not enough customers um, 
or too many farmers um, so so that nobody's making money because not enough customers means the prices have to go up. Too many farmers means the prices get forced down and the farmers don't do well. Um, it's a huge time commitment for farmers to attend the farmer's market. Um, the The markets tend to, at least the business models in Cincinnati, tend to lack farmer control. So if farmers are unhappy, very often um, there's a lot of pressure to, to not not participate, and there's, there's a huge waiting list of other farmers that want to take their place. Um, and, and finally, um, um, a lot of these um, markets are subsidized by grants, and, and so it's not really a sustainable business model. And, and, and I'm curious um, if, if you noticed anything like this happening in your work and what you did, if you did, how did you overcome it, or if you didn't, um, do you have any advice for the farmers of Cincinnati? Well, thank you, and I um, respect your work very much. And, um, you know, often I, I hear that the demand is outstripping the supply of uh, local, um, locally grown vegetables in many communities. So that's really interesting about Cincinnati. Um, I also, though, uh, understand, you know, that there's, it, it's very difficult to make a living uh, if your only market is the farmer's market. And um, I, I, do you have any food hubs there where farmers are working together to aggregate the supply for larger customers? Well, we, we have two new ones that I know of. There may be more. Um, but um, neither of them are farmer, farmer control. Uh -huh, in fact, right. have, have any farmer input to speak of. Uh -huh. So uh, I, I'm, I'm a little reluctant that um, this, this rickety wheel uh, of farmers' markets is, is being reinvented in the form of, uh, uh, of, of, of a food hub where there's no power that farmers have in the marketplace. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't hear that. I, 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 my apologies. I'm actually at an airport in uh, Newark, and so that was the overhead speaker. Uh, so I, I think you're right. In general, uh, shared ownership and, and participative, participative governance are critical factors in any kind of uh, success for economic transition. Uh, those who are most affected need to have a, a voice in how decisions are made that affect them. And uh, shared ownership means that you get to benefit from um, uh, your participation. And so if you could develop a, a, with others uh, a food hub that is um, co-owned by uh, farmers locally, that makes a lot of sense. Overall, I know that we're in a really hard time as we change. We know that our um, dominant agricultural system is leading to disease and unhealth, um, and uh, yet it's very, very uh, cheap and, and, and poorly created food. And uh, so we're in this place in between where we're building the healthier alternatives, but they're naturally and should be more expensive. We need to be spending more of our money on, on the health of our bodies. Uh, but we're in this hard place in the middle. Um, right now we're working some with Kaiser Permanente, which is a um, very large healthcare system in the United States. And uh, they have found that only 20% of 
uh, what makes people healthy, um, do they have any control over? So with their medicine or with their surgery, 80% of what makes people well has nothing to do with what they can offer. It has to do with things like access to healthy, fresh food and walkable communities and actually a sense of belonging and entrepreneurship and being able to express your gifts. These are the things that make people actually physically well. And so they, as a large, large institution, are looking at how can we invest in um, not just even healthy food for our um, uh, people who are at our hospitals, but for the whole community. How, so these are, I, I think that the, the future and the next few years, we're going to see a lot more collaboration between government and large healthcare institutions, et cetera. Because, uh, for instance, at Kaiser Permanente, uh, uh, t t tells me that one in five of our dollars of our GDP today are spent on um, uh, health care and is rapidly moving to one in four. So even though we have this cheap, poorly created food, all the, the externalities of that are, are going right into our bodies and making us sick. So we are <laughs> going to need to shift in the direction of, of farmers like you. Or you. Um, but we're in that middle of, of that transition back toward healthy food and uh, how we're going to pay for it. Well, of course, we have healthy food. Um, it's not necessarily locally produced. Uh, certified organic is, has very high standards of health. Um, and, but, but we're not creating um, the opportunity for, for farmers in our area to enter into that system. I noticed that you had a new farmer training program, and I'm curious, How's that going? Are you are you producing farmers that are, are you know ready to hit the ground running and earning a living um, in agriculture uh, after they go through your program? So uh, we at Bali don't host a new farmer training program, although some of the people that we work with in their own communities have a variety of uh, new farmer training programs or uh, entrepreneur training programs, and so sometimes they are. Um, uh, mentoring young farmers, pairing them uh, with experienced farmers, um, supporting them in connections to new, um, to, you know, to, to local outlets like different um, retail and wholesale um, connection points, sometimes connecting them to local financing. Um, so I think all over the country people are um, experimenting more with how to get people into regenerative careers and into regenerative businesses, including food and farming. You know, I, is it David? Is that who's on the call? Yes. How yes. organized are farmers? Is there an association? Uh, there are groups of farmers that are organizing to have the kind of conversations raising the questions that you're raising in Cincinnati? Well, we're, we're, we're actually um, about to have a meeting on Sunday um, uh, about about 30 years ago, we started the Ohio Ecological Food and Farming Association, and um, it's, it's grown significantly. Right now, we have about 10 chapters in the state, and Cincinnati has a Southwest chapter. And, and we're, we're, we're about to begin conversations about these very issues amongst yeah. the farmers. That's great. If any way we can help, let us know. So we've got a couple of thank you very much, David. Sure. Uh, a couple of things on the chat, Michelle, and then I think we're getting close to the end. Uh, somebody said I did a study in Bridgeport about how micro businesses contribute to social 
cohesion? Uh, do you help small businesses claim this important benefit? Any thoughts about that? Do we help small businesses to claim what? Well, if he's saying, do, do you help small businesses claim the contribution they make to social cohesion, social capital, all the, all the, all the well-being institutes? How, uh-huh. how do you promote these ideas? Uh-huh. Uh, yep. So at the, at the local level, certainly, uh, so any of these kinds of studies that we see, we do distribute, of course, uh, but at the local level is really where uh, people are celebrating that. Um, and so that's happening through um, festivals and through, um, uh, you know, presentations to the local hospital, presentations to city government uh, to shift economic development dollars. Um, uh, here's a, this isn't directly related to social cohesion uh, per se, but certainly, yes, we do share those kinds of studies and people are they're feeling the social cohesion. Um, where, where I guess it would matter to promote the, 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 those kinds of data points would relate to really when you're aiming to shift resources. And so um, if you're trying to shift resources from foundations or from government toward the strategies that actually make us more socially cohesive, you need to you know, use that kind of data. Uh, today, uh, there's $80 billion that local, not just national, but local and state governments are spending um, collected from taxpayers, you know, collected from all of us in our own communities, that we spend uh, for economic development, uh, that we spend primarily on recruitment, meaning that, that it's spent, uh, given to uh, companies that are generally not local with the idea that they, if they operate a, 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 a factory or a, um, an office in our community for some period of time, then our community will get those jobs. But what um, studies more and more have shown is that uh, not only are is most of the money spent never tracked, two-thirds never tracked. You know, maybe they, they closed down the, the, the office. Maybe they laid off everybody. We don't know. We just gave them the money. Only one-third is, is tracked. But actually, um, this is not creating jobs. So what, what in essence happens is that these companies get money to um, pay the wages of some employees locally, which they may or may not hire locally. They may bring them in from other places. They get uh, taxpayer dollars to pay the wages of those employees for a few years until the subsidies dry up, and then they're recruited to a different place. But then local taxpayer people give their money to that company, and it's really just been uh, contributed significantly to this amazing funneling of wealth into very few hands, so much inequity right now in our country, and proven absolutely to not create um, lasting jobs in a community. So if we could just shift that $80 billion to the, um, the, the technical assistance providers, the capacity builders, the food hubs, the farmer-owned food hubs, we shifted it to those who are actually working with local people to create local jobs for social cohesion over time. Um, you know, those are the kinds of places that we need to influence um, uh, and where studies like that come in handy. Well, you're... Uh, you're... You're amazing. Uh, you're so clear. You're such a bright light, Michelle. We're pretty much <laughs> near the end of time. But I thank you so much for the work you're doing and how informed you are. Well, I greatly respect uh, I greatly respect the both of you, and I so appreciate your having me on your call and for all the work that you've done for so many years to inspire all of us. That's cool. All right, Go right Johnny, on. final thoughts? <laughs> Final words, John. I didn't. No, I think this has been uh, uh, 
very useful. And one of the things that I noticed in uh, uh, Michelle's site was that, that she's quoting people and apparently believes herself that um, large complex systems are not able really to fix themselves. That, that that kind of reform is very effective and that there has to be new space created for uh, real effective invention and economies. And uh, within that conceptual framework, I think what uh, she's about and all of us uh, are about as we can is creating a new space not spending so much time on reforming the institutional space. Amen. Amen. That's a good way to end it. <laughs> thank you so much, Michelle. Maggie, you want to close? Sure, sure. Um, thanks, Michelle. This this has been a, a lively conversation, and I sure appreciate your taking the time to be with us today as you move around the East Coast. Um, and also thanks to all of our listeners and, and those people who joined us on the telephone and in the chat. Uh, if you'd like to know more about Bali, uh, you can visit the website, which is www.balocalist.org. Uh, and the recording of, of today's program will be on AbundantCommunity.com uh, later on or tomorrow. So we'd like to invite you to join us again the next time, which is going to be February 16 when we have David Matthews of the Kettering Foundation as our guest. So until then, stay with us um, on AbundantCommunity.com. And uh, thanks again for joining us. So this brings our okay. program to the end of today. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.